Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine being both principled and compelling. That's something neither Adriano nor I would have much experience of. If any, Paul Browning, on the other hand, has been a head for over 24 years in schools in Victoria and in Singapore and in Queensland. He is one of Australia's leading voices on changing the game of school, particularly with his work at St Paul's in Ball Hills in the beautiful city of Brisbane in Queensland. He is a refreshing and delightful person who has so much to offer us in the space of thinking about what it means to lead as the game changer. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you and our esteemed guest, Paul Browning. Before we get to Paul, uh, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Uh, look, it's a little bit grim here, Adriana. Hmm. Grim. Why is it grim in Fitzroy? I mean, because in, in sunshine, it's sunny and we live in the same city. Look, there's been an oat milk crisis. Right. Oh, that'll be oh, that'll be a disaster. <laughs> the cafes, they don't know what to do. They're having to serve normal milk. There's a crisis all around. There are sad looking people with extravagant facial hair on fixies riding all around. They're bereft, Adriano. They're bereft. But all, all you need now to have is a revolution from the vegans because the tofu's run out. They'll be all at trouble everywhere. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our guest here at Game Changers, Series 11, Phil. Can you believe that? Series 11. Paul, I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, Adriana and Phil, can I just correct you, Phil? Apologies for doing that online in this podcast, but it was a great introduction. But I have been the principal for, or a principal for 24 years, but not in schools in Singapore, Victoria, or places like that. Victoria is not really my place. I'm actually a New South Welshman. So I've been the principal of a school in Canberra. I was the founding principal at Bergman Anglican School. So I grew that school from 24 students to it's over two campuses now with one and a half thousand students, which is a pretty great achievement to look back on. It was about a thousand students when I left there in 2008. And for the last 14 years, I've been the headmaster at St Paul's School in Queensland, a place called Bald Hills. No jokes about my lack of hair either, which I said to staff when I first arrived here. You know, just Bald Hills, my favourite colour is red, school colours are red. So it 
It was just pure coincidence I actually came here to a place that sort of resonated a little bit about who I am. So that's a, perhaps an answer to your question there, Adriano. Well, it might have been my wishful thinking that you were leading a school in Victoria. But anyway, we'll keep moving on. <laughs> I have spoken in Singapore and I've spoken at conferences in Finland and around the place, so in the US and well, it's the UK as well. So I've done, I've done that work, but I haven't led schools in those places. So... In those experiences that you've had in the very in the different states of Australia, and poorer for you for not having been in Victoria, by the way, anyway, <laughs> what is it that has stood out to you about your own leadership growth? It's an interesting question. I had, I, as a leader of a school, I've had two quite different experiences. In my stage in my life at the moment in my career, I wonder what's next and do I go to another school? And I've kind of landed on the fact that no, I don't really want to go to another school. You know, I'm looking for another challenge, a different challenge. But Bergman Anglican School was a, a really remarkable opportunity to actually build a school, be the founding principal, grow it from the ground up is just a remarkable privilege. And if you speak to any founding principal, they'll all say the same thing. You get to shape an organisation that reflects your values and your beliefs about education. And you Mm -hmm. get to create something that really is in in your own image about what you believe education should be about. And so it was, for me, I finished there in 2008, the middle of 2008. I've been there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I'd grown the school from 24 students. And when I left, it was just under 1,000. We had about 3,000 on the waiting list. I stood at the top of the oval and I looked back across the school and a sense of vision I had for that place was achieved. And I knew instinctively that it needed somebody else to take it on. You know, mm-hmm. I, to be a founding principal, you really have to work hard. You have to be driven. You run on the sniff of an oily rag. The resources you've got to organise a school are very limited. So you ask a lot of the staff. And people who work in founding schools will tell you that they work pretty damn hard because you just don't have those structures there. Uh, and I knew really that if I didn't leave, I'd probably burn the staff out. And so I, I look for a different opportunity and I knew that there's a different type of leader needed to come in and actually take that school to the next stage. And I'm really grateful for Stephen Bowers who took it on. He did a mm-hmm. really remarkable job. But in terms of yeah, my passion is leadership. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking for an opportunity that would actually challenge me as a leader and help me grow. So I was looking for a school, uh, as I looked around for different job opportunities, I was looking for a school that was established a lot older. I'm interested in co-edu- co-educational, uh, uh, co-ed, sorry. Uh, I wasn't interested in boarding, faith-based schools, large schools, and the job opportunity at St Paul's arose. And you know, I wanted to actually come to an existing school to see how I could reshape culture. Instead of just grow it from the ground up, how could I reshape it? And so that really challenged me as a leader. Okay. I've got two questions going through my head about both of these experiences, one that has passed and one that you're you're still participating in. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the decision that you came to that it was time for someone else to lead that community? Can you just talk a little bit about what that decision was like for you? What's some of the things that you may have worked through or or protocols you worked through in your own mind, reflective practices perhaps, that helped support you come to that conclusion that it was time for some new voices in this place? And that's a a good question, Adriana, because it it is hard to know when is the right time to move on. Mm. Uh, When is the best time to actually look for a different challenge and opportunity? I think it comes down ultimately to what you value as a person and what you believe leadership is actually about. For me, and I think it should be about this for every leader, leadership is about service. 
It's about serving a community mm -hmm. uh, and helping to grow that community and helping individual people to flourish and reach their potential. So if it's not about me, it's about the community, mm -hmm. you then start to reflect on well, what's best for the community. It's not actually about what's best for me. It's about what's best for that community. So in reflecting on the decision to leave Bergman, incredibly successful school, an incredibly exciting project, but that community needed something else. It needed someone to consolidate it. And I didn't think I could reinvent myself into that sort of leader. And so really it was time to move. The other part of that too is, you know, I had a vision for Bergman. So when I started it with the, the school board at the time, we had a, a clear vision of what we wanted the school to look like. And after 10 years of being there, I could comfortably say, I've achieved that vision. Now you could stay and, and create a new vision, but at the end of the day, the job was done. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, and so yeah. it was yeah. time for somebody else to take it on or a time to me and time for me to take on another challenge as well. So some hard questions you've got to ask yourself. You've got to ask yourself, what are you on about? You know, what mm -hmm. do you value? What do you believe leadership to be? What is your vision for an organisation? And when is the right time to hand that on to somebody else to be the custodian of the next generation or the next chapter of its life? There's a real lesson in all this for everyone that's listening to this conversation, and that is effective leadership calls us into the space of a deep tuning in. Yeah. And if we don't have a capacity to audit our own why and purpose and then have the courage to go, well, is this now still serving this community well? Is it serving me well? Is it serving, you know, the people that I'm supporting well? We've got to ask ourselves often these hard questions. And it would have been very easy for you to simply go, I'm just going to keep continuing if they were prepared to, to have you continue, of course. I'm sure they would have. But then you now find yourself in a new learning environment, one that is well-established, no doubt with lots of legacy pieces that you would have encountered in your leadership at St. Paul's. Can you share with now our listeners what changed or shifted or evolved in your own leadership style once you're now into a new environment where it's not from the ground up, it's something that's been already established? And how were you able to penetrate a community that you would have been foreign to and still have now the success that you've been having? One thing I'd probably advise listeners is to find yourself a good mentor. So I had a couple of really great mentors in the ACT. The ACT has got some really terrific schools and, and one guy, David Mulford, which some of you listeners might uh, be aware of, he's now retired, but he was at the time the principal at Radford College and went on to be the headmaster at Newington College in Sydney. But David gave me some really good advice. He took me under his wing a little and, and said, Paul, you don't want to leave a great job. You've got a good job. But if you do leave, you've got to go and find something that's really going to challenge you and help you to grow. So what is it? What sort of school do you want to go to? Don't just go to any school. The other challenge he said to me is you do need to leave uh, to grow your own leadership and mature as a leader as well. So that was really good advice. So hence, that's why I had that criteria about the sort of school I wanted to find and apply for. St Paul's came up and I applied for it and, and the rest is history, obviously. But I wanted that challenge to see what I could do to effectively change an existing culture. And the first step when you move into a new school, particularly an established school, and this is where I see a lot of principals or new principals come unstuck, is you need to understand the culture and the community you're going into. You know, a lot of people move into a school or into a new job and say, I'm here aren't you lucky to have me? And now I'm going to affect the change and bring upon you all the wonderful ideas that I've gathered over my life. And, and this is what it's going to look like. 
And so they make it all about them thinking that their job is to be the hero and the savior of that community. And they fail to understand what that community actually needs. And so it becomes a bit of a mismatch and it always ends in disaster because the, the community basically say, hang about, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job here. Why do we need you to come and save us? Yeah, or, or what you're talking about is nothing uh, like what we actually need or what we want here. Uh, this is what we want. So the most important thing for people moving into a new job, particularly a leadership role in a school, is to spend the time understanding the community you've gone into getting to know them so listen listen intently and i would say spend three to six months listening so the three first three months or first six months i spent here i met with every single staff member mm -hmm. i spent about half an hour with each of them sometimes more sometimes less i didn't ask them to come to my office uh, there's over 200 staff here it's a big school i went to where they worked and i just bumped in i didn't make a time i just popped in say hi i'm paul i'm just coming to meet you tell me about the school tell me about the work you do yeah what do you think the school needs uh, what's the biggest challenge uh, really listened intently to the, this community uh, and out of that started to get in my mind a picture of where the community was at mm -hmm. what it actually needed and the challenges that I needed to tackle over the next couple of years. Uh, and Adriana, I came across a challenge like I would never, ever expected, yeah. uh, which has resulted in the, the large portion of my work over the last 14 years. This, uh, this notion of a deep tuning in continues in our conversation because your first school, it was about deep tuning in, it's about self and the value that you can continue to contribute to a community. And now you're coming to a new community. And I love that you went on a listening tour listening to understand not to respond in the initial phase when you settled up alongside of your new colleagues and you asked them the question you know g'day how are you tell me about the school were some really energized by that style of wanting to know them and better understand them and were some challenged by you just appearing <laughs> I think the easiest way to explain what I found is to tell you the story of what I actually found. Sure. What I found was a culture which was just bizarre. It was a very, very odd place when I arrived. Mm -hmm. uh, people weren't collaborating with each other. I wasn't welcoming classrooms. You know, people looked at me very suspiciously. There was an awful sense. And in effect, when I finally put my finger on it, it was a culture of mistrust or mm -hmm. distrust mm -hmm. and as i dug a little deeper i started to understand why that was the case why people were working in such a bizarre self-protective uncollaborative mistrusting way it's as i understood it and i don't know whether listeners are aware of the story of st paul's school but st paul's school was case study number 34 in the royal commission for right. institutional responses of sexual abuse and as I started to unpack the layers and dig down to find out why this culture was like it was, mm -hmm. it, it was apparent that it had been affected largely mm -hmm. by the horrific sexual abuse that occurred throughout the 1980s and the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So two perpetrators, a music tutor in the early 80s, and then a school counsellor uh, had abused well over 150 boys over that period of time. Uh, and when they were found out, obviously, that the shock and the, uh, the, the trauma that it had caused and the impact it had on the community was such that it, it just, it was a horrific for everybody, really, uh, not the least the, the victims themselves. But 
the, the head at the time lost his job when it was found out. The new head came in, was faced with this terrible circumstance. She was, I think, very affronted by this, this you know, story and created this culture of mistrust. People here at this school must have known about what was going on behind closed doors, and yet you said nothing and did nothing. Therefore, I'm not going to trust you, and therefore, this is the culture that we're going to create. So there was this just this terrible culture of mistrust. And so my job really was to unpack that and begin a journey of healing the past wrongs in the community and rebuild the culture so it actually did reflect the values that I brought to the school. It took a long time, Adriano, and a lot of work. Paul, thank you for sharing that. I'm already feeling deeply humbled by the account that you've given of your work so far as a school leader in two very, very different contexts there. You came into your second school deeply, deeply bruised community, deeply, deeply hurt community that needed healing and most importantly, a climate of trust built up again. And in your book, Principle, your 2020 uh, publication, you explore 10 leadership practices for building trust. What does trust look like and what doesn't it look like? The interesting thing about trust, Phil, is it's a socially constructed phenomenon. It only exists when we come together in relationship or in community. So it's a little bit like leadership. If you Google leadership, you'll find that there's over 30,000 definitions for the the word or the the term leadership. We can't have an agreed definition of what leadership looks like because it's different for different people. You bring to the act of leadership your own life experience, your own values, your own views, your own personality. Uh, So it's a socially constructive phenomenon. You can only lead when people come together in community, when you're in a relationship with each other. And it's the same for trust. You you cannot have an agreed definition for trust of what it looks like because everyone has their own life experience and life story. And so they will define trust through those experiences. So, for example, if if you're a person who's been through a horrid divorce, your partner's betrayed you and had an affair, you've been deeply hurt by that experience, you'll define trust through that experience. And trust is a little bit like air. You don't notice that it's missing until it's foul. So we take trust for granted, yet it's the lubricant that makes relationships work. It makes organisations work. If you don't have trust in an organisation or in a relationship, you really don't have much of a relationship. And so as I listened to staff across the school and started to get an understanding of what the existing culture was like, it became very apparent that there was an absence of trust and it was really affecting the way people worked. It was even affecting the way people related or teachers related with students. Uh, It was affecting the relationship with parents. It was toxic is probably the best word to describe it. Now, a lot of organisations won't have a toxic culture, but there will be a level or an amount of trust that's within that organisation. Is it a high trust organisation or a low trust organisation or somewhere in between? It's not a question of whether you're trusted or not, it's a question of how much you are trusted. Mm -hmm. So once I understood that trust was absent, I wanted then to understand how could I rebuild trust? And I didn't know how to do that, Phil. I didn't know. And so that's why I did my PhD. So I did a PhD into trust and practices that build that back that culture of trust and found through that research, there are 10 leadership practices that anyone can develop themselves, regardless of their personality or their background, to build a culture of trust. Now, I would say to listeners that at the end of the day, in all my experiences as a leader, and I've been a leader of schools now for over 24 years, 
the most important thing a principal or a leader should be doing is building a culture of trust and then casting a compelling vision for the future. People won't go on the journey to achieve that vision and do amazing things unless there's a culture of trust that enables them to work collaboratively together and give up their best, take risks, try new things and create something quite amazing. When you have a culture of trust, you unleash the potential within your organisation and can do remarkable things. It's such an interesting point that you raised there, Paul, because it may mean as a principle that when you walk into a school and there's a whole bunch of things that you want to get done, those things simply aren't going to get done according to your timeline and the way that you want in terms of whatever vision that you've cast, particularly for a board or for a local district that might have encouraged you to apply. Inevitably, as part of that process, they'll say, well, what do you think the future of the school will be? And you lay out this vision and suddenly you come across a very, very different reality. That sort of adaptive expertise and that sort of self-restraint, that sort of delayed sense of gratification, the willingness to put the needs of the people in the community before your own needs as a leader, I think are inherent components of great servant leadership. And you mentioned service earlier. What are some of the other lessons that you've learned along the way about being a leader who is the servant of the community? Yeah, Phil, you jog my memory of a story. It comes back again to the questions Adriana was asking and my response to that. The first thing you need to do is to understand who you are. If you're going to be a leader, what do you value? What are your beliefs? What is your purpose in life? What motivates you as a person? What pushes your buttons? You cannot lead unless you really understand yourself and who you are and what you bring to that act of leadership. When I first arrived here, yeah, I wasn't really aware of what had gone on in history. And the, the school council, we call it school council here, not board, were aware of it to a degree, but not to the extent of uh, what had actually happened. And they set for me some KPIs. They said, Paul, within the next year, we'd like you to achieve X, Y, and Z. And one of them was to raise $100,000 from past students. You know, I can't remember the other ones. And they said, we're going to attach a monetary value to those KPIs. So you'll get a bonus if you achieve these KPIs. And you know, a lot of us actually driven by money. At the end of the day, I discovered I wasn't driven by money in that experience. That's not who I am. While it was enticing to actually get that bonus, that performance bonus, it became quickly apparent as I listened to people that if I focused on those particular KPIs that the board gave me, we were not going to really achieve remarkable things as a school. And Thomas Sergiovanni, who's a, he's an academic in, in the area of leadership, he's passed away now, said, you cannot achieve a vision or a strategy unless you first have trust. You've got to build trust first. And so I said to the, the council at the time, I said, look, yeah, that's very nice, that performance bonus, that's terrific. And those KPIs, uh, yeah, great idea. But at the end of the day, that's not what this community actually needs. This community needs X, Y, and Z. And I don't want that performance bonus. So sorry, I'm going to give it back to you. And I'm going to focus on these things. And if you're happy with that, then let, let's go for it. And those KPIs that I then developed were around building a culture of trust back into the organisation and setting a compelling vision and getting people aligned to that vision and away we went. There were some really challenging decisions along the way that I had to make in relation to that. But again, it came back to that point that I made earlier that if you go into a school and you don't understand that community and the existing culture and you don't empathise with those people and you just bring in your own agenda it's going to end in failure. But if you take people with you and you walk alongside them, you serve them, they'll do anything for you. It, it, it's quite exciting what happens when you actually turn it around and it becomes an act of service. 
Thank you, Paul. I'm learning so much as we're talking here. I want to jump you forward now to the latter stages of your principalship at St. Paul's where the values and value proposition that you bring to the community is, is something quite different now because having addressed, if you like, historic wrongdoing and building a climate of trust that could help individuals in the community to heal, you're now very clearly focused on using that as a platform to prepare students to thrive in their world and to flourish in their world. And you may mention to that earlier, what are the competencies that students need to thrive in their world and how are you trying to lead your community towards those competencies? Yeah, I must say, if I look back at St Paul's when I first arrived here, we enrolled our kids here. Um, we had two children at the time. One was Alex, he was in year eight, and my daughter was going into year six. And we thought it was a really good school because from the outside, when we looked at it, it looked like a great school for all intents and purposes. You had terrific history, not the, the culture of abuse, but you know, people were very proud of the school. Uh, lots of you know, really notable past students, great uniform pretty positive and good academic results for all intents and purposes that looked at like a great school. But, and I also believe that if you don't, you don't believe in your school enough to send your own kids there, then really you're not doing a great job and creating a terrific school. So we enrolled our kids here, but after about three months of listening, I said to my wife, I took her out for coffee. I said, why do we actually have our kids here? Like, what have we actually done? We've taken them out of a great school and put them into this school. And I don't want to sound disparaging as supports because it was a pretty good school. But I've got to say now, after the work that we've done, and I'd say we've done over the last 14 years, St. Paul's School is an amazing school, and I'm incredibly proud of what we actually do here. And I would say that we're on the cutting edge of education for the future. And we're only there because we've rebuilt a culture of trust and unleashed the potential of the staff and created a terrific vision of what the future should look like. And that vision, if I unpack it very briefly, was to look forward to the year 2028, so I reminded staff this morning as we returned to work that yeah, we have a vision for 2028. We established that vision back in 2014. And that vision is for a school that will be very different to what it is today. And that vision is for a school that will address what the world could look like in 2028. Yeah, we did a futures planning project called Scenario Planning back in 2014. We created four stories of what the world could look like in 2028. We researched that for over a year, creating those stories. We had Patsy Salberg, who was part of that journey with us, Yong Zhao, Andy Hargraves, Saul Eastlake. Uh, we had some really prominent people who were part of that project. And then we created four possible futures of what the world of 2028 could look like. And then we asked the question, well, what are we doing to prepare young people for that future so they can thrive in that future? It's a pretty daunting and scary prospect, that future, but how do we actually ensure our young people thrive? And as a result of that, we, we realised that we needed to actually make sure that we prepare young people to think creatively, to think like an innovator and to become, if they choose to, an entrepreneur. And yet schools are very good at killing creativity. These are the very dispositions that people need in the future. So how do we actually address this issue? How do we teach for creativity? You might have seen the Sir Ken Robertson video about schools killing creativity is dead right. You look at the national curriculum that says in there that we need to produce creative individuals, and yet it doesn't tell us how to do that. And yet we just keep going on with the same sort of you know, regurgitation of facts and content delivery and you know, the same model of education we've had for, for centuries. We're not preparing young people for the future. So how do we educate them to give them those dispositions they need to be able to think creatively? 
to think like an innovator and think like an entrepreneur. So with that, we've totally redesigned how we actually teach and deliver our learning. And we call that delivery realms of thinking. So what's involved with realms of thinking, Paul? As I said, that challenge of how do we teach for creativity, we went on a journey for the last 12 years of looking at the way we teach. And we put together a project team and we've been through several iterations and we've now created a teaching and learning platform or teaching and learning framework that we call realms of thinking. Realms of thinking essentially are 16 dispositions that are necessary for creative thinking. And they're underpinned by academic research. One of our staff members did that academic research. They're underpinned by prototyping and testing within the school as well. But there are 16 dispositions that you need to think creatively. Things like empathy, the ability to deal with ambiguity, the willingness to take risks, collaboration. And teachers in the school explicitly plan to embed those dispositions into their learning in the classrooms. And students know the language around that as well. Those dispositions are necessary for creativity. But when you cluster them together, they form ways of working like design thinking or entrepreneurial thinking. So lots of schools are moving into the entrepreneurial space. But unless you change the way you teach young people, it's just going to be a nice glossy add-on buzzword type thing you've got there. To be a true entrepreneurial thinker, you need to be able to think creatively. You need to be able to think like an innovator. So we explicitly teach for that. So we're embedding those dispositions into the classroom. Then in addition to that, we started a third pathway of learning, an entrepreneurial pathway. So not only do students have the opportunity for an academic pathway or a vocational pathway, but they can start their own business while they're at the school. We have a number of other programs with our Centre for Innovators and Entrepreneurs as well that students can tap into. We're doing some really exciting work now with Melbourne University where we're developing assessment tools for realms of thinking in those dispositions. At the end of that project, at the end of next year, we would have developed some assessment tools that enable us to measure each student's ability in those dispositions and report on them to parents in a learner profile. And that is a really exciting piece of work and really, I would say, a game changer for education. I'm just energised sitting here listening to you, Paul. I'm so excited about the possibility of St Paul's and what you're doing in that particular community. I'm deeply energised by your preparedness to share with our listeners that we've got to do the work first. We've got to do the deep tuning in. We've got to really understand our context. We've got to heal ourselves from the residual of our past And we've got to continue then to build blocks going forward that we never make those same mistakes again that have created so much trauma and no doubt generational trauma. And now you find yourself in a place where a community understands its inherent possibility and that possibility is limitless. My question to you is something that you just touched upon there around the energy in which you shared that the young people now at that school have so many pathways to undertake. Is there a danger by calling them pathways that we find ourselves or young people branding themselves in that one direction? Is there a danger in that possibly happening? Because I know in the Victorian context, I know that when we we had a scenario at, at my last school where 78% of students between year nine, it only had a retention rate of 78% between year nine and year 12. And what we, of course, discovered very quickly was in this leafy suburbs of eastern part of Melbourne, young men were leaving because there was no optional pathway for them. 
they were searching for whatever that was that served them. And of course, we, we changed that after listening to, to them and understanding their context and what their desires were as much as the adults' desires. And we introduced a series of pathways. And some of those pathways were vocational. Some were an in-context pathway. Some were internship type scenarios. Others were, again, school-based apprenticeships. And Consistently, then, we had a 97, 98% retention rate between year nine and 12 for a sustained period of time, and then I departed and so did the principal. But that was a huge success. But what we found, Paul, was that there was some stigma associated to some of these pathways where there was almost a hierarchy, and we had to work exceptionally hard with the adults, particularly the parents, to understand that each pathway has equal value for that young person because it's about their context and it's about you know, what their individual needs are. But it was a piece that was really difficult at times to break through. And occasionally there were young men whose parents were adamant that they weren't going to go down a particular pathway because they were probably more concerned about what it looked like to others as opposed to what it was for the young man experiencing it. So that's my question. How are you going to ensure that the parents see that all of these opportunities have equal value? I'll answer that in a couple of parts, Adriana. The the first part I'll probably say is that if you are a principal of a school, you need to work out what the identity of your school is or is going to be. Mm -hmm. So you can't be all things to all people. So the beauty of the independent school sector is that there are different schools for different purposes. So it gives parents choice. And some schools clearly market themselves as an academic school and their sole purpose is about getting the best ATARs, the most, uh, you know, ATAR 99.95, uh, people going off to law or medicine, and, and that's who they are. That's their identity. And that's okay. If that's who they are, that's, that's okay. Uh, St Paul's School, though, we're about a holistic education. That's our, our identity. So our identity is about education of the whole child. Uh, the preparation of their intellect as well as their social, emotional, spiritual and physical development, the development of their character. So parents are choosing us because we are a holistic educator, education provider. That's our identity. Underneath that, though, our purpose really, and we say that to everybody, we always use these, these same words everywhere. Our purpose or our mission as a school is to prepare resilient global citizens who are innovative thinkers with a heart for servant leadership. Now, everyone knows what our purpose is. That's our brand. It's Mm -hmm. a holistic statement. We're Mm -hmm. preparing the heart, the soul, the mind. We're preparing young people to make a difference in the communities in which they'll eventually live and work. So parents are choosing us for that reason as well. Ultimately, too, it's not for me. It's not about the academic results. It's actually about the skills and dispositions, the character traits that we develop in a young person, and about the opportunities that we provide for them as a result of their education here. So it's not about pushing a child into one particular pathway. Mm-hmm. You're academic, you need to go down an academic pathway because you're going to make us look good as a school and get a really good ATAR result. You're not you're going to not perform very well on these academic measures. And so therefore we're going to push you down a vocational pathway because you're not going to look very good about uh, for our school either. And that's where we think you should go. That's where the stigma actually occurs. Mm-hmm. If you strip that away and accept as a school that, hey, it's not about your results and not about your school reputation. It's actually about the individual child you have been entrusted to educate and doing the best you can for them. Everything else will take care of itself. 
And so when we come to the pathways here at St Paul's, you know, we offer three pathways, an academic pathway, a vocational pathway, or an entrepreneurial pathway. Students can do all three. And there are students who are doing all three. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's actually about the development of those key dispositions that are captured in our realms of thinking, teaching and learning framework, skills and dispositions they need to thrive in the future, no matter whether they're a plumber mm -hmm. or a brain surgeon mm -hmm. or an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And it's the character traits they bring to that as well. What sort of person are they? It's very refreshing to, to hear, yeah. Paul, um, how you've just articulated a response to my question there, because we're fundamentally now talking about skills that are transferable, irrespective of the choices or the pathways or the opportunities that young people choose to go through. At the moment, Phil and I are working with Catholic Education South Australia, and we've been working with them now nearly two years to support them in developing an entrepreneurial model of learning, and it is called Limitless. And in many ways, they have developed a set of, you call them realms of thinking. They have some key capabilities that they've always had as an aspiration, but never known how they could use them in the context of their schools in a way in which then it's going to have me bring meaning and real value to the young people in their care. What we are seeing is a real transformation in their mindset that learning is really possible when we are prepared to allow young people to step into their voice, their agency and their own leadership about the things that matter for them and their, their immediate community. So many of the young people that, they are, they're, that they're encountering, that we're encountering with them, have a deep consciousness about the other. Everything about your leadership is about a deep consciousness about the other. I want to now shift it then to the young people in your care and I know that's been the heart of our conversation anyway, but how do you then explicitly help these young people to understand their inherent worth, that each of them are home to a unique life that has value and are valued? Yeah, well, and that is the, the crux of what we actually are about as educators, isn't it? It's about the it student. It's at the heart of it. It's about serving them ultimately and supporting them where they're at. If I just take a step back, first of all, to part of the project with Melbourne University is we surveyed our parent community to ask them, you know, questions around these dispositions and how valuable they see them. And ultimately, our parent community are actually saying, that's what we want in an education. We're not so interested in an ATAR academic result. We're actually more interested in the development of those skills and dispositions. We're more interested in their character traits. So it's been a real challenge to shift the societal conversation, so to speak, because Society as a whole, the media, the government, all tell us it's about NAPLAN results and ATAR results. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. schools are failing our students because we're falling in standards as measured by PISA. But why are we playing in that game? Because at the end of the day, we know that that's not resulting in an education that's worth having. It's a, an old paradigm that needs to shift. We're not actually serving our young people in a right and effective way. We're doing an unethical and immoral job by persisting in that model of education. If we don't equip them with these skills and dispositions that they need, they will not thrive in the future. And one of the questions I ask the parent community who are employers themselves or people who work in business, so people who know what they're talking about, I ask them the question, as an employer, what is the most important thing that you look for in a new employee? Is it their skills and their dispositions? Is it their character traits? Or is it their qualifications? You can probably guess, and listeners can probably guess what was number one. Number one was character. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in the person's character and what they bring to their company or their organisation than anything else. Close second was skills and dispositions. 
a very distant third was their qualifications. Employers are not interested so much in the qualifications of a young person. They don't care whether they've got an ATR of 90 plus. They actually care about the person they're employing and what they bring to that organisation and company. So why are we so caught up with this paradigm of ATAR or academic results? Why aren't we shifting and focusing on the development of skills and dispositions and character traits? So coming back to your question, Adriano, from a very early age, we had to shift the culture of the school and tell the story continually of what we're actually about. So almost all students could say to you, we're about preparing resilient global citizens who are innovative thinkers with a heart for servant leadership. We have a culture of care and pastoral care and well-being is a very important focus of what we actually do here. So students know at the heart of what we actually do, it's actually about them. Mm. They're at the centre of every single decision. There's lots of other structural things we've done to create greater student agency, but they all know that it's actually about equipping them and helping them to grow as a person. It's not about their academic performance. If they want to do an ATAR and we know they're only, only going to get a 40, well, they can do it. That's okay, because I don't care about the reputation of the school as much as I care about that individual child. Everything you just described there about the aspiration of your community in terms of the desired outcomes you want for these young people to acquire so they can thrive in this world, in this new world that we find ourselves in, a, a complex one where uncertainty is our new normal, that is your reputation. Yeah, exactly. The funny thing is if you focus on the child, your reputation will take care of itself. If you focus on the yeah. learning, the academic results take care of themselves. If you focus your think time and energy on the other, it won't work. Yeah. Uh, and so many people fall into that space. I've got to focus on getting as many ATAR 90 pluses as I possibly can and great NAP plan results. And therefore, the strategy we employ is we'll ask these kids to stay out of the NAP plan uh, testing next week because we know they're not going to perform very well. Or we'll play the game to actually achieve a result that at the end of the day is really going to negatively impact our reputation. Yeah, Phil's going to be very modest about this, but Phil has been a leader in the area of character education for a substantial amount of time before my, my coming on board and working with him in, in this new venture of a school for tomorrow, for instance. His work with Circle and the character education research that he has done extensively, I think it's over 12 years, probably even more, Phil, you'll correct me, has really illustrated to the schools that we continue to support across the globe that character is the reason why we do school. Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's about the child, the person sitting there in front of you that has been entrusted to you to educate. If you don't make it about that child, you're making it about yourself. Yeah. And as my constitutional law lecturer, Jim Crawford, now Justice Jim Crawford, would have said the tail can't wag the dog. Yeah. You know, in education, we've got to get things right. We've got to focus on the fact that we grow people, and if we're going to grow people, then we need to put those people first, and we need to think in and around that. Paul, I have a feeling that we could talk with you on leadership for several days without stopping, and <laughs> but we're going to have to pull this pony up and draw it to a close. If you only had 280 characters to tweet a definition of leadership, what would it be? It would be a, a definition that comes that I've quoted in my book, Principled. Hugh Mackay actually quoted this or, or said this. The act of leadership is an act of service. As any good leader knows, it's about serving a community. I mean, they're not the exact words, but that's what it's actually all about. It's about service. It's about serving the community. 
It's about empowering people. They're more than 240 characters. I, I can actually grab the quote if you like. That won't be necessary right now. I actually think that what we've learned about today from you, Paul, there's another quality in there, which is discernment. You know, that capacity to discern the nature of a community and its context, to be able to discern the theory that's going to inform the work and what theory you're not going to use along the way, the capacity to discern the hearts of a community and the things that really matter and the capacity to discern what is important in the lives of students and what is not. Paul, you are a shining example for so many of us. You are an inspiration to me and to thousands of educators around Australia out there right now of what you can do if you put your heart in the right place and then you work towards discerning what really matters when you lead a school and a school community. Thank you for coming on our little podcast today. You know, God bless you in the work that you're doing at your school and in your community. Please carry with you our deep respect and our expectation that whatever it is that you do, whether it's at this school or at your next enterprise, you're going to keep on keeping on and keep on providing us with that very concrete example of being a game changer. Uh, Phil, you're, I'm humbled by your comments, but thank you very much, Phil, for the opportunity. And Adriano, thank you for your questions and the opportunity. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.